Mike came to the United States of America as a refugee at the age of seven. He faced many challenges, such as a medical condition that caused him to have no hair on his entire body. Yet he persevered to the extent that he earned a Grammy, four Emmys, nine Tonys, three BAFTAs, and an Oscar for Best Director. He also married a news anchor and raised Arabian horses. Mike became one of the most honored of all Americans. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and this is Watching America. All my life, watching America. All my life, it's panic in America. Oh, 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 trouble in America. From WHRV Norfolk, this is Watching America. It would not be unreasonable to describe today's show as a type of graduate course, but it will also be an examination of a great director's life and his body of work. May I ask you a question? What do you think of me? You've known me nearly all your life. You must have formed some opinion of me. Mrs. Robinson, you're trying to seduce me. A room. I'd like a room, please. A single room or a double room? A single, just for myself, please. I got a single room. That's fine. I'll be up in five minutes. Oh, goodbye, then. Benjamin, isn't there something you want to tell me? I want you to know how much I appreciate this. The room number, Benjamin. I think you ought to tell me that. Oh, you're absolutely right. It's 568. Do you want to, uh, you want to try and tell me why you did it? Mr. Robinson. I do think you should know the consequences of what you've done. I, I do think you should know that my wife and I are getting a divorce soon. Listen to me. What happened between Mrs. Robinson and me was nothing. It didn't mean anything. We might just as well have been shaking hands. Shaking hands. Well, that's not saying much for my wife, is it? You missed the point. I guess I do. The point is I don't love your wife. I love your daughter, sir. As far as Elaine is concerned, you're to get her out of your filthy mind right now. I think you are scum. Happy, extremely happy, because of my guest, Mark Harris. Mark Harris has written a new biography entitled Mike Nichols, A Life. Now, those of you who listen to Watching America regularly know that my other existence is that of a film professor. So I can say with assuredness that there are very few persons who have such a cavalcade of significant films as directors. Maybe about five or six other directors might come to mind. Certain, you know, Orson Welles, John Ford, etc. But Mike Nichols stands apart uh, as a singular voice of the 60s that came into the 70s and 80s. But he was more than a successful director and uh, play director, for that matter, stage director. He was also a very intriguing man, very, well, much an enigma, as my guest Mark Harris has discovered. Mark, welcome to Watching America. It's lovely to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Let's begin at the beginning. There is a fine tradition in American cinema of uh, Jewish people of necessity leaving Berlin, Germany, when things were getting very nasty, to say the least, and coming to the United States. Certainly Fritz Lang did that, Billy Wilder did that. But we have a young boy who is yet to be a director at the age of seven, who will become Mike Nichols. Can you tell us about his uh, pilgrimage to New York? 
That's right. That that's really where Mike's story begins. He uh, left Berlin with his younger brother when he was only seven in in 1939. You know, just as as all Jews were really beginning to to get out of Germany, uh, he came across to New York City, where his father had come a year earlier to establish a medical practice. Uh, and their mother was supposed to bring them, but she was ill and uh, had to stay behind. So so Mike's journey journey toward being Mike Nichols really begins with this lonely voyage on a boat to a new country where he spoke no English. And, um, and also uh, by the time Mike made that journey, he had had a very bad reaction to uh, a childhood vaccine that um, rendered him unable to grow hair. So, so he really begins life as um, a double outsider, an immigrant and um because of the way he looks. Well, it's very cinematic uh, as described uh, by himself in that, as I understand it, he actually sailed past the Statue of Liberty and he was astonished when the boat came into port to actually see things written in Hebrew, um, which said a lot about his point of departure from, from Germany. It's true. I think that at, at seven, Mike was probably um, still too young to take in how dangerous everything was. You know, everything when you're a small child uh, is fairly normal if it's your life. So I think what was not normal to Mike was to come to this world where it was perfectly okay to be Jewish, perfectly okay to have uh, Hebrew signs in the uh, windows of grocery stores and and, uh, butcher shops. It really was a a new world to him. He um, has to survive uh, increasingly in, in a sea of Gentiles around him. And this causes him eventually to change his name to Mike Nichols. And he goes to uh, university. And uh, that's where things really start to happen with him. Uh, First of all, it's very significant association and love affair with Elaine May, who would become a prominent screenwriter herself eventually. And uh, his work with the with the Compass Players, which was really a, a precursor to Second City uh, in Chicago. What was that period of transition from boyhood to going out finally to Chicago uh, like for him? What what were the intervals of events that happened? Well, I think that arrival in Chicago was really the moment when. Mike Nichols started to feel as if he had come alive. I mean, he did not have uh, an easy childhood. He jumped around between different schools. I think he went to four different schools by the time he finished high school. He felt a little aimless after high school and didn't even know if he wanted to uh, go to college. And his acceptance to the University of Chicago came at the very last minute. So suddenly he, he, he felt, and he spoke of this later, that his life was really beginning because for the first time he didn't feel alone he felt that he was among like-minded obsessives and and uh other kids and young people who were interested in the same things he was interested in and uh fairly early on he gravitated toward theater and toward acting um not necessarily comedy initially but but acting classes and an exploration of what was really um, then the early development of improvisational uh, technique. Was he wearing a toupee or a wig, if you will, uh, at this stage of his life? Uh, uh, When did that actually start? I mean, did that actually start around the age of 10 in boyhood? I think probably more like um, 13 or 14, uh, which is when Mike's father died. Mike's father did not allow him to wear a toupee because in the sort of misguided child psychology of the time, the thinking was, oh, he'd better, you know, this is his condition and he'd uh, better get used to it. So one of the first things that happened after his father died, he died quite young, was that Mike asked for a toupee. And, you know, Mike's father's death pushed the family from reasonable middle-class comfort into serious financial straits. So so a toupee, a hairpiece, was was a luxury purchase, and, and they couldn't even afford a very good one. And and Mike didn't have a good one when when he went to college. By all accounts, it was evidently um evidently a hairpiece, but 
at least it was something that made him feel uh, more normal, something that made people not stare at him quite so much. And that was really important for him. Well, Elaine May, we all know, was uh, one of the key romances and obviously artistic partnerships of his life. But had there been any loves before Elaine May? You know, I think he had um, a high school girlfriend or two. Um, Mike was not completely unpopular in high school. But no, I think Elaine May was really the first time he he fell in love. And it may have been romantic love for uh a little while, but but I think more than that, it was really the first time in his life that he felt he had discovered a, a kindred spirit, someone whose language he spoke and who spoke his language. That that was the big change for him. So they start to put together a sketch comedy. They do various skits and they are able to harness this into a full show. And then it's advocated that they actually take it back to New York. So they're off, off Broadway, then they're off Broadway, and then finally they're a tremendous success with a best-selling album. Um, those are pretty lofty days for a young man with great insecurities. How did he handle it? Well, it did happen very, very quickly. I mean, Mike and Elaine came to New York in the fall of 1957 and uh, started playing a few local nightclubs. And right at about the end of 1957, beginning of 1958, they uh, made their first television appearances and within a couple of months were nationally famous. Uh, it's, they, they said they became famous overnight and it's, it's very close to true. Um, and then, you know, very rapidly, they were making as much money for a single appearance on a TV variety show or talk show uh, as they had made in their last year in Chicago. And I think that Mike found it exhilarating and also uh, disorienting. I mean, just the experience of having a lot of money was so alien to anything he had ever lived through um, that that he, he quickly sort of decided to push his lifestyle to the very limits of his newly large income. I mean, Mike liked to make money and he really liked to spend money. And so he he started living like a rich man almost as soon as he possibly could. That was really the 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 biggest kind of perk of fame to him was finally being able to live the way he wanted and, and buy the things he wanted. And then they just kind of blazed a path across uh, comedy culture and TV culture to the point where by 1960, um, they had become sufficiently famous to warrant their own Broadway show, which opened and ran for eight or nine months. Let's take a, a look at some of their work, a television clip from the era, from the time, from The Ed Sullivan Show. Hello. Hello, Arthur. This is your mother. <laughs> Do you remember me? Hi. Mom, hi. I, I was just going to call you. Is, is that a funny Arthur, thing? You know that I had my hand Arthur, on the phone. Arthur, you were to supposed call. to call yeah. me last Friday. I, mother, darling, I just didn't have a second and you I didn't cut have my a throat. Second. I was so busy. Arthur, I was, sat I, oh, by no. that phone. Mom. Someday, Arthur, Mom. you'll get married. Mom. And you'll have children of your own. Mom. And honey, when you do, I only pray that they make you suffer the way you're making me. <laughs> That's all I pray, Arthur. That's a mother's prayer. Well, how did he parlay um, having a successful Grammy award-winning album uh, and, you know, doing a two-person show with Elaine? How did he manage to wingle his way, if I dare use that term, into actually, uh, if you will, directing serious productions? In this case, Neil Simon, or as eventually would become known, Doc Simon, uh, doing Barefoot in the Park with, with Robert Redford. Was, was that a hard transition or was it in like Flint? Uh, no, I think it was a complicated transition because it was not something that he had in mind at all. Mike did not see his performing career with Elaine May as 
a means to an end. He would have happily continued to do it for quite some time. And it was she who decided that the Broadway show had run long enough. She became very, very tired of repeating herself. You know, they they established their partnership in, in their early 20s and, and were not yet 30 by the time the show opened on Broadway. And she said very bluntly that she never envisioned that what the pinnacle of their career was going to be was doing the same routines that they had refined night after night after night. She wanted to create new things. She wanted to write more. He did not so much. So the show ended at her request. They went off uh, in separate directions, uh, she to write a play and he to act. And that was when their partnership really ruptured. She wrote a play for him. He starred in it. And during Out of New York tryouts, they were really at odds. He did not like the text. She did not like his performance. And that's when their uh, partnership really ended. Later, of course, they would reconcile and uh, become friends for the rest of his life and and valuable creative partners as well. But, um, you know, Mike started directing because he didn't know what else to do. And, and his agent suggested to him that it might be worth giving it a try. However, once that happened, he often said, and I believe this, that he realized on the first day he walked into the rehearsal room for the out-of-town tryout for Neil Simon's Barefoot in the Park that he realized that directing was the thing he was meant to do and wanted to do for the rest of his life. Well, after that, he has an additional success working with Neil Simon yet again with The Odd Couple. And so between the two projects, he actually received his first two Tony Awards, um, which was astonishing. So he's still a very young man. He's got a Grammy and now two Tonys. And then the opportunity to go to Hollywood comes knocking with uh, an adaption of Edward Albee's work, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? The, The screenplay, as you know, was done by Ernest Lehman. Um, this is 1966, and it's an extremely unlikely choice. I actually fell for him, and the match seemed practical, too. For a while, Daddy really thought that George minute, had the Martha. stuff to take over when he was Wait ready a minute, to retire, Martha. and we both thought that naturally... Stop it, Martha. I wouldn't go on with this if I were you. Oh, you wouldn't, would you? Would you not? Do we really have to go through all this? So anyway, I married the SOP. I had it all planned out. First, he'd take over the history department. Then when Daddy retired, he'd take over the whole college, you know? That was the way it was supposed to be. And Daddy thought it was a good idea, too, for a while. Until he watched for a couple of years and started thinking that maybe it wasn't such a good idea after all. That maybe Georgie Boy didn't have the stuff. In fact, he was sort of a flop. A great big fat flop. Talk about headiness and stars. Uh, Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, who were the stars of the of the era of that time. George Siegel, and a lady that I got to uh, act with very very briefly in in a workshop at Fairfield University. Sandy Dennis was in the film as well. Um, dark, heavy, not a comedy. What an interesting and intriguing choice. What made him take it? I think in some ways, uh, Mike thought after directing four hit shows in New York in a row, all of which ran so long that at one point all four were running at the same time, I think he thought, oddly enough, that this might be a good way to ease into movie making because from his perspective, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf had been a play. It only had four characters. It was set at least on stage in one location in one night. So... I think he thought perhaps that the material would be fairly uh, easy for him to get his head around and he could concentrate on learning the technique and technology of making movies, which is something he was really concerned that he didn't know how to do. And, of course, what he encounters when he actually gets there is that there are some areas of it where he feels very comfortable. I mean, he insists on a really long rehearsal period for the cast, which was quite unusual for movies. And he was always very comfortable handling actors. But at the same time, he suddenly finds himself working 
on this incredibly controversial piece of material that is so raw and at times profane that it will end up almost single-handedly overthrowing the system of uh, movie censorship, essentially known as the production code that that had been in place for 30 years. And he's working with the world's most famous and most controversial couple. So, so I wonder sometimes if he had known how complicated it was going to be, if he really would have chosen that as his first movie. It wasn't supposed to be. The Graduate was supposed to be his first movie. And then he, he sort of pulled Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf in front of it and went with that instead. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm your host, Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest is Mark Harris, I'm delighted to say, the author of a new biography called Mike Nichols, A Life. You mentioned, uh, Mark, that uh, distinctly, uh, it's extremely unusual indeed, um, that Mike Nichols preferred to have a very, very long rehearsal time. And that was probably something that he brought from theatre with him and was able to um, insist upon. He certainly had it with The Graduate, uh, working with Anne Bancroft and Dustin Hoffman. The casting of that was very much against type, going with Dustin Hoffman. Um, the thought was going to be, as you know, that you know the, the main character written in, in Charles Webb's novella was described as being blonde, almost like a Greek god, and so to go with a, a rather short um, and unassuming man like Dustin Hoffman um, was an interesting choice. But he went with it, with Anne Bancroft coming right off the miracle worker, the success, both the, the stage play and the film. Um, that took great guts to assemble the two particular actors. Um, did he ever have self-doubt? You know, I don't think he had self-doubt about that. It's it's funny because, you know, now people hear that Robert Redford really wanted to play the lead in The Graduate, and, and they say, oh, well, that's impossible. That would have been ridiculous. But as you note, um, the, the, the way the character is written in the novel is actually much closer to Robert Redford than it is to Dustin Hoffman. He's blonde. He's a track star. He goes Mm -hmm. off at one point to fight forest fires in Northern California. Um, And uh, the conception that Nichols and his screenwriter, Buck Henry, had uh, really was that at the beginning. They used to call the family, uh, the Braddocks, the surfboards. They, They thought of them as blonde West Coast beach people. And then the whole idea changed uh, when Mike just couldn't find who he wanted to cast. And it became really clear that he was looking for someone who was almost the polar opposite of Redford. Uh, You know, the casting of Dustin Hoffman wasn't just unusual because he was physically so unprepossessing, but because he wasn't known at all. He, w- he was the absolute center of the movie, uh, acting opposite an actress who had just won an Academy Award, and no one had ever heard of Dustin Hoffman. So I think Mike, very early on, learned to trust his instincts even when he didn't understand his instincts. And I think that's a particularly daring thing that, that maybe uh, sets artists apart from from other people you know it's one thing to know exactly what you want and be unafraid to go after it but it's another thing to know what you want but not know why you want it and still decide that that you're going to do it your way and I think I think that's what happened with the casting of Dustin Hoffman I don't think Mike Nichols necessarily knew why he wanted this type of person and why he was so bent on it that he was willing to cast a non-star he just knew that it was right. And and by his own description, he didn't realize until long after the movie had come out why he had wanted Hoffman and what he was going after with, with his casting. Well, you remind me of the observation made by Steven Spielberg, who said, getting what you want isn't the hard part. It's knowing what you want. Regarding Buck Henry, here's uh, here's a writer who had actually worked on your show of shows with Sid Caesar. So he'd come from that kind of New York 
almost live television uh, background. Uh, how did he get involved with the project? Uh, because that was a very, very interesting choice. I mean, obviously, Calder Willingham was writing the script as well. But Buck Henry, and for those in my audience who may not know, for a long time uh, was one of the most frequent hosts of the early Saturday Night Live show. Um, he was uh, a frequent guest host and, and uh, a part of that circle. Um, how Buck Henry? Why Buck Henry? Right. Mike had tried two or three different writers, um, uh, including Calder Willingham, who ultimately received a, a co-screenwriting credit on The Graduate and and just wasn't getting the script he wanted. And it's funny because uh, the, the Graduate, Charles Webb's book is largely told in dialogue and, and much of the dialogue ends up almost verbatim in yeah. the movie. <laughs> but Yes, but yes. they still weren't quite finding it. And uh, there was a big 4th of July party out in California in 1965, given by Jane Fonda uh, and, and Roger Vadim. It was a beach party. And, and Mike Nichols was invited to that party. It was right when he was working on Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf and wandered out onto the beach. And there uh, under a tree was Buck Henry. Um, and... Uh, Oddly, Mike and Buck Henry had gone to school together for one year when they were very little boys. They didn't really know each other, but but they did have that in common. And Buck Henry, I didn't know had, that. Um, That's interesting. Yeah, you know, Buck Henry had had become a very successful TV writer and was doing this uh, TV series called Get Smart. And he and Nichols just struck up a conversation almost in, in kind of joking form. You know, they started to do voices and and play characters, which was often the way Mike got to know someone for the first time. It's the way he and Elaine May connected. And um, really, I think at that party, that's where Mike got the idea for uh, Buck Henry to uh, to give the script a try. And, and Henry became one of his uh, most trusted and loved collaborators. He wrote several movies for him, and, and they, they knew each other for the rest of Mike's life. Um, Catherine Ross, how did he feel about working with her on that film? Catherine Ross herself has said elsewhere that she felt that she disappointed him. Uh, there's a sequence where there's a, a revelation about who Ben has been having an affair with. And she felt as though she couldn't actually bring it to fruition with her own acting. So they resorted to defocusing as, as if the light was going on with her recognition of what the situation was. And she said that she always felt that she had failed him. Did he feel that way? Um, I certainly never heard him say that he, he felt that Catherine Ross had failed him. But, you know, The Graduate was a very long and in some ways a, a painful shoot. I mean, Dustin Hoffman has spoken quite frankly about the number of days. He basically said most days that uh, he was working on the film. He he went home feeling that, or went back to his hotel feeling that he had failed, that he had somehow disappointed uh, Mike and and not delivered for him. And and you know, Mike could be wonderfully warm and supportive and encouraging, but he could also, particularly at the beginning of his career, be standoffish and chilly and disdainful. And you know, he rode Dustin Hoffman very very hard. Uh, you know, there there were. Uh, the dynamic between them was occasionally almost sadomasochistic, you know, and he was constantly reminding Hoffman that, that, you know, you only have one chance to do this and do you, does it really matter that you're tired and don't you want it to be great? And, and so I think my impression is not so much Anne Bancroft, but certainly Dustin Hoffman and Catherine Ross were kept throughout the very long shoot of the graduate in a near constant state of, Apprehension. Hoffman later said that he and Catherine Ross would sometimes look at each other as if to say, "Oh, what, what did we, what did we do to upset him? What, you know, he he seems unhappy. Uh, what's what's bothering him?" Well, by this phase of his life, he's really playing the Hollywood role. He has a Rolls Royce, which incidentally appears in. I don't know if you're aware of this in the Graduate, the scene where Dustin Hoffman is running to the church. And you, the, the soundtrack music score, I should say, drops out and you just go to natural sound with cars zipping by as the track stars running. You'll see in the background as they pull the shot, um, rack focus, you'll see a silver blue 
Rolls-Royce, and that was actually his Rolls-Royce. actually appears twice in the film elsewhere. Um, but he went on later to say about that period of time, he said, um, he says, I was, I was a real, and I won't use the word he used, jerk. And he said, I used to drive around Beverly Hills in a Rolls-Royce. And he said, I got beyond that. Um, and yet he was always stylish. This is a man who had cashmere V-neck black sweaters with white slacks and penny loafers and what have you. Um, he never lost that casual debonair flair about himself. Was it, was it conscious or unconscious? Oh, I think it was very conscious. I mean, Mike once said to uh, George Siegel after the making of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, you know, it takes me three hours to become Mike Nichols every day. And I, I think that was very much connected with, you know, his his hairpiece and his, the eyebrows that he had to put on. Um, but also, you know, feeling from a very early age that he had to essentially invent a self that was suitable for uh, public consumption, and and you know, so the so the 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 way that Mike Nichols looked, always elegant, always you know beautifully turned out, uh, was was really a conscious choice made by someone who felt that he had to uh, come up with a a polished and and slightly impregnable exterior self to present to the world from from an early age almost as a means of survival. He decides to take on Joseph Heller's book Catch-22 uh, in 1970. Um, did he enjoy that? I know that I, I believe they were shooting in Spain at times uh, for that particular film. Uh, well, was they, that sh- they shot in Mex- Mexico and Italy. Mexico and Italy. Okay. Yeah. Um, was he was he comfortable with what was happening with the picture, or did he feel it was getting getting away from him? You know, it's funny when you read interviews uh, with him. Sometimes he says, "Oh, I had a great time. It was wonderful. I had my own uh, troop of actors and and fleet of airplanes to play with. So why wouldn't I enjoy it?" But I think closer to uh, the truth was the fact that he felt wildly out of his element and and just overwhelmed by the logistics of an incredibly complicated production. Um, Catch-22 was the first movie that he made when the full success of both Virginia Woolf and The Graduate were apparent to the entire industry. So for the first time, he could have a virtually unlimited budget, and and that movie did cost more than his first two combined. He was able to shoot uh, on location uh, in Mexico. They built an airstrip uh, for him to to play with. Uh, he, he was able to go to Italy to do sequences, which he really wanted to do because he so admired Fellini at the time. He was able to spend five weeks on a soundstage in Los Angeles trying to get one sequence right. And I think um, in many ways, the logistics of the film uh, overwhelmed him. He said later that Alan Arkin, who's the star of the movie, once complained to him that he spent more time on the airplanes than he did on the actors. And, and, Mike himself did not think that was an unfair criticism. Uh, he 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 really was kind of beset by production difficulties and and couldn't do what he really loved to do on a movie, which was to give every actor incredibly close attention and and work with them and on them to refine all of the smallest details of their performance. It's been said of various celebrities, um, uh, and John Lennon, a favourite of mine, actually, so I don't say this with condemnation, but uh, it was said of John Lennon that he could be sincerely false. And in other words, presenting facets of himself like the proverbial diamond that he wanted the public to see, uh, albeit with allowable foibles and and, uh, weaknesses. Could that be said to some degree of Mike Nichols? The reason I mention this is because he seemed to have a penchant for um, being anecdotal, um, being a raconteur, but he was very skillful in what parts of himself he presented. Is is that unfair of me to say that, or is that accurate? Uh, no, I, I think that that is fair, although I don't think I would use the word false uh, because the the exterior self that mike presented um 
the the polished raconteur, the storyteller, um, the elegant, impeccably well-mannered man was absolutely a real aspect of Mike. It was the aspect of Mike that he chose to show to the outside world. It wasn't the same always as the way Mike was privately, but none of us are are 100% privately the person that we are publicly. Um, so I, I tend to resist the idea that, you know, I think it becomes easy for certain people to to say, oh, well, he was a phony. All of those those good manners were just an act. And all of, underneath all of that polished surface was, was this roiling, anxious, insecure, depressive man. Uh, you know, he was at many times insecure and angry and depressed. And he was also that person who was able to Turn himself out, turn himself out impeccably, and and be the wittiest, most polished person in any room. They were they were both real, and one of the reasons I found it so fascinating to work on this book for for several years is that that he could house those contradictions. That wasn't there wasn't a true Mike and a false Mike. They were all Mike, and and trying to figure out how those pieces fit together was really part of the challenge of writing about him. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Watching America. I'm Dr. Alan Campbell, and my guest, I'm happy to say, is Mark Harris, the author of the new biography, Mike Nichols, A Life. Um, You obviously knew him. He attended your wedding, uh, as did Diane Sawyer. Uh, But as you've just alluded to, the the fact is is that you know him on one level, and now you're digging in and turning over the soil. did you find that as you turned over the soil, there were moments of regret, regret where you might say to yourself, mm, I really wish I didn't know this. And conversely, at other times when you thought, this is fabulous. I only wish I'd known this when I'd been in his presence. Huh. It, you know, it, it's funny. I I worried a lot before I started this that there would be those moments when I thought, um, oh, I wish I didn't know this. I, I thought, what is going to happen when, when I – through my research or through the interviews I do, encounter incontrover- incontrovertible proof of, of him behaving really badly. Um, and, of course, that did happen. And I, I, I found that I didn't mind it at all because, you know, when I knew Mike, he was – I probably met him when he was close to 70 um, and and knew him from then until the end of his life at, at 83. And that was a really settled, happy time in Mike's life, um, a very fruitful time when a lot of the pain of his past was well behind him. So as I as I dug into the 70 years I wasn't present for and learned more and more about him, I, I never thought oh, I wish I didn't know this. I, I was kind of thrilled to know it because if anything, it shed more light on who the Mike that I knew was and how much work it had taken to become that person. Um, I never felt that my job was to protect him or to protect his image. And part of the reason I didn't feel that was that, you know, I had interviewed Mike for my first book uh, pretty extensively. That book was largely about the making of The Graduate, so that was the period that we concentrated on. But I had also talked to him many times over the years, and I knew that many of the most unflattering stories I had heard about Mike and his behavior came directly from Mike. He was not defensive about uh, that kind of uh, thing, although he was occasionally embarrassed to, to recall his own behavior, he really thought, in fact, that it was very important to be honest and blunt and forthcoming about the times when he thought he had acted badly because so much of his life was a conscious attempt to journey away from that, to to not be the person that he felt professionally, he started out as being. As an investigator, Mark, uh, albeit with a friend, um, did you find that there were certain people who would close ranks and not want to open up to you? And were there other people who did open up or perhaps along the way, find some people who you thought were a bit um, 
uh, unnecessarily unkind. Uh, what was the atmosphere? Were people getting on the phone to other people saying, hey, Mark Harris is going to ask about about Mike, uh, don't talk, or he's good, he's fine. W- was it a mix? Well, uh, I was very fortunate early on to uh, get the consent of Diane Sawyer and of Mike's three children to okay, do the- there you go. And not only to get the consent, but to get their permission to tell people I had consent. So there was no, as far as I know, at least, there was no sort of private closing of ranks. You know, one interesting thing is I, Mike died in December of 2014, and I started work on the book in, I would say, mid-2015. And I would say that the the interviews at the very beginning of my process, the ones that I did just maybe six months after he passed away, there definitely were a few instances where I, I felt that people had negative things or unflattering things to say about Mike, but they really didn't want to. Um, it, that For them, it was almost like, being impolite at a memorial service somehow because yes, because it was yes, still so yes. recent. But I, I suppose it was my good fortune that that research for the book took um, three and a half years before I started to write because by the time I was, you know, a couple of years into it, I think that had worn off and people were really willing to speak very forthcomingly. And I think most people were genuinely interested in, in presenting uh, a nuanced view of, of a nuanced person. And, and so that's what I got and what I tried to convey in the book. I think many people would be very curious about the relationship between uh, he and Diane Sawyer. Diane Sawyer, former, I believe, Miss America, who, if I'm not mistaken, I'm going purely by memory. I have no notes here, but yeah, I think she was a junior Miss, which is like one of the teenage ah. uh, beauty pageants. <laughs> okay, junior Miss, and I, I, she was either I think she was from Kentucky, was it, or West Virginia? That's right. Yes, Kentucky. Yes. Okay. Um, so uh, she she grows up um, part of the you know the Bible Belt consciousness, if you will. And she marries this man who was, in a sense, a refugee from, from Germany. Um, what were the dynamics like between them with, with such dissimilar backgrounds, and yet both of them highly driven, very creative, um, impassioned people? I think Mike absolutely loved that. I mean, this was his fourth marriage. Um, he had been divorced three times. And uh it was his first time in a in a really serious relationship with someone who was a celebrity in her own realm, a complete success in her own right. Um, you know, had had her had her own money. Um, I think Mike was just sort of dazzled by her, and she by him. I mean, I think it was great fun for both of them that that they they were sort of king and queen of their respective lands, but that what they did um, uh, really didn't overlap at all. So there was never a moment of competitiveness. Also, you know, Mike, um, Mike married Diane when he was in his mid fifties. And by then he had had a a really uh, decades behind him of great collaborations with Women. I mean, starting with Elaine May, but also with people like Meryl Streep and uh, Nora Ephron. So uh, yes, Mike yeah. was always really comfortable working with women and being around powerful women. And I know just from the times he uh, spoke about Diane to me that, you know, when she couldn't come out to dinner or something because she was on assignment in the Middle East somewhere, you know, he would miss her terribly, but he was also just bursting with pride that she was so needed and important and had her own things to do. He really loved that. So I think he not only met the right partner for him, but he met her at the right time in his life. You mentioned Meryl Streep. Um, after Catch-22, he did Carnal Knowledge, of course, with Art Garfunkel. And uh, and then he does, with Meryl Streep, he does Silkwood, which is a very frightening picture, very dark picture. Um, did he maintain a very close relationship with Meryl Streep for years afterwards? Well, I think he was 
truly in awe of her talent from the first time they were on the set of Silkwood together in Texas and she stepped out of the makeup and costume trailer and he barely recognized her because not only had she physically transformed herself, but but she had kind of spiritually transformed herself into another character. Mike knew that... Um, she was very talented. I mean, he sought her out uh, when he first saw her on stage off Broadway and, and just knew instantly that, that she was someone special. But I think on the Silkwood set, um, what he realized was that in some ways she was going to hold him to uh, an incredibly high standard, that, that her approach to getting all of the details right and, and to creating an incredibly physically lived in performance was was so close to what the way he liked to work with actors and actresses that um he he would almost have to work to keep up with her and he loved that i mean uh mike and merrill worked together um several more times you know in in a few movies and and uh once on stage but even during the times when they were not working together there was almost never a period when he was not actively pursuing a script or a novel to adapt with her in mind or trying to get her to appear uh in a broadway play i mean he never stopped wanting to work with her. And even in 2014, the year he died, uh, 32 years after Silkwood, he was actively planning um, a film with her. He, he, he really wanted to direct her one more time. Well, then after that, he lightens up, if you will, and he does Working Girl with Melanie Griffith, Harrison Ford, Sigourney Weaver. And then he works with Jack Nicholson on Wolf, a very intriguing, unusual picture. And then finally, uh, he does something which is quite diversified birdcage in 1996. Ooh. Turkish coffee, delicious. What's wrong? Earl's getting married. Don't be silly. Some girl he met at school. Oh, no. Bottom line is he's getting married no matter what we say, so the less said, the better. Our baby is going to leave us, and we won't have any others. Not without a miracle. Birdcage was actually the highest grossing movie of his career. Um, it, it was, you know, Mike had had some, some sort of middling success in the 80s and 90s with, with a few movies like Regarding Henry and Wolf, you know, things that weren't quite landing or that critics thought were okay but not great. And he made The Birdcage um, really... First of all, he loved the material. He had he had chased after it for for years, and and in fact had signed up to do a Broadway musical version of it that was not uh, the version of La Cage au Fall that eventually reached Broadway. This had a completely different creative team and a different approach, but he'd always really wanted to do it. And um, then when he was able to secure the film rights, the the remake rights, you know. His heart was absolutely in it creatively, but I think alongside that, uh, the birdcage came along at a point when Mike was about 65 and there were uh, uh, any number of younger directors sort of breathing down his neck and who were the hot new things in Hollywood. And I think he really wanted to prove after, you know, a, a very, very, very long time since The Graduate that he could deliver a movie that opened at number one at the box office and stayed there and made substantial money. Um, and, um, and the birdcage did, he was, he was thrilled uh, when, when it opened at number one. And I think it stayed there for four weeks and he, it, there was really an element of I'll show them like they, they thought I, they thought I couldn't deliver a big hit, but I did. Mark Harris, he was your friend, uh, but you also were able to break through the veneer historically by interviewing various persons. What do you admire most about him? And what do you think is the sweetest thing about him that the majority of persons on this planet don't know? Uh, I'll, I'll answer those two things separately. I, I think the sweetest thing about Mike that a lot of people don't know is, is that... Um, Late in his life, which is when I knew him, he was one of the 
the kindest and most generous people that I've ever met. I mean, it wasn't just that he uh, he gave lovely gifts or hosted wonderful dinners or things like that. It's that when you did something that pleased him, he would write you the most extraordinary note or email. He was a, he was a big emailer because he didn't like his handwriting. So email was really a, a breakthrough for him because he loved communicating that way. Um, and, and really just find words to make you feel that, that the sun was shining on you. Um, a lot of people don't know um, and wouldn't know if they didn't know Mike personally, but he was really lovely on that level. And what I most admire about him uh, in terms of his, his working life is that, um, you know, I write a lot in this book about Mike's failures. And I think that that has surprised some people that, that I give a lot of uh, time to the movies that don't work and the plays that flopped and, and the projects that just didn't quite come off. But I think Mike's story in many ways is a story of persistence. It's a story of an artist who has extraordinary, almost uninterrupted early success and then doesn't. And and starting in his late 30s or, or early 40s has a more typical career of ups and downs and hits and flops and misses and comebacks. And when that part of his life starts, what I so admire is that he was never defensive about having a failure. He was never defensive about having let himself down. He was always interested in looking at what he had done and saying, okay, why did this happen? Where did this um, fall short of my own expectations and hopes for it? And what can I do better the next time? And that persisted really into his late 70s, when even after heart surgery, one of the first things he did while he was recovering was take out a legal pad and start making a list of the things that he had done wrong on the last Broadway uh, show that he had directed, which was not a success, so that he wouldn't make those mistakes again. And I hope that what I hope that that's something that other artists who might read this book can can draw inspiration from that that the the job throughout your entire life, if you're a creative artist, is always trying to look at your own work honestly and think about what you can do better and how you can do it better. That I find, I mean, his talent was extraordinary. And of course, I admire that. But his persistence in the face of setbacks, I think, is really exemplary. And I, I admire that greatly. Mark, this program is called Watching America, as you know, and we look and seek for uh, opportunities to expose, understand and appreciate great Americans, uh, both known and sometimes unknown. But Mike Nichols certainly ranks high above those known for reasons that are all, all valid, uh, richness of personality, kindness and certainly uh, given talent without question. He was a great director. And you are a marvellous writer. And Mark Harris, it's been wonderful to have you as an American speak about yet another American, Mike Nichols. The book is entitled Mike Nichols, A Life. It's the biography of the great director written by Mark Harris, my guest for the last hour on Watching America. Mark, bless you. Blessings. And I hope when you work on your next effort, you won't hesitate to call us and come back. Oh, it would be a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. This was a delight. You've been listening to Watching America. Our theme music is provided by Razorlight. Our recording engineer is Todd Washburn. Our assistant producer, Jordan Christie. Gina Gamboni is our senior producer. Chuck Dowd is our executive producer. And Heather Mazzoni is chief of content. Bert Schmidt is our CEO. I'm Watching America's creator and host, Dr. Alan Campbell. Until next time, take care and blessings. Watching America is a production of WHRV Public Media in Norfolk, Virginia.